Morning again. If you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. And as Jim mentioned, we're going to finish up this, this study this morning in the books of 1 and 2 Peter. Now when you come to the end of most books, often you see two words. You know what they are, right? The end. <laughs> the end. Exactly. But as we come to the end of this book, we will call it a book, but it's actually a letter. It's a letter written to a group of persecuted Christians who were driven out of Jerusalem and scattered across Asia Minor. Our book doesn't end with the words, the end. It ends by talking about the end in the sense of end times, but the last word in the book of Second Peter is just one word, amen which means let it be so, or so be it. In fact, that's how the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible ends. The last word in the Bible is amen. Now, why not the end? Why wouldn't it say the end? Well, because if you think about it, it's really not the end. The end of the Bible is not the end at all. In fact, it's the beginning. Right? It should probably say the beginning. Because the end of time is only the very beginning of eternity. Amen? So I'd like to see it say the beginning. Think about, Billy Ram had this thought. He said, you know, your last breath, the moment of your last breath on earth will be the moment of your first breath in heaven. Think about that. Won't that be wonderful? All of the pain, sorrow, sickness, entropy, all of that will be behind us. And we'll be with the Lord in eternity forever. Imagine how glorious that will be. So 2 Peter doesn't end with the words the end, but it does speak about the end or the beginning right before the beginning of all eternity. And what I find in the Bible is whenever it talks about end times, the emphasis is never on when they will be. The emphasis is on, the emphasis is on how we are to live in light of the end times and whether or not we'll be ready. And so with that in mind, as we finish up this book today, the message title is Preparing for the Day. And we're going to go through 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll cover verses 11 through 18. And the outline has two parts. A future vision in verses 11 through 13. And a present virtue in verses 14 through 18. And I think it would be good to back up just one verse and we'll read from verse 10. Because it kind of ties together our text from last time and this time. So let me read through it first, and then we'll, as always, work our way through it. So beginning in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking of them, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men 
and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. And so it ends. Last time, as in last week, we saw that in the last days, scoffers are going to come. And they're going to say, where's this promise of his coming? Ever since creation, everything's gone on just as it always has. It's only natural processes, gradual changes over long periods of time. It was that way then, it is that way now. It's always going to be like that. There is no return of Christ. The scoffers want you to believe that. But Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, but they overlook two things. They intentionally forget that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth by the power of his spoken word. And then later by that same word, he brought judgment upon the earth in the flood. And he says, and don't miss this one point that this same word... By the same word, Christ will return and the earth will be destroyed. There will be judgment again. And so he doesn't want us to miss this point. And so that's where we pick it up. The day of the Lord. It's going to happen suddenly. And it certainly is going to happen. And so we want to look first at, in verses 11 through 13, a future vision. And... The Lord is pointing us to what is going to happen in the future. So our text begins in verse 11 with a strong challenge. It's translated in the NIV as a question, but it's really not a question at all. It's an exclamation. And so I'll, I'll point that out. Verse 11 says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? A rhetorical question. You ought to live holy and godly lives. But again, it's, it's not a question. It's an exclamation mark. And you could translate it this way. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what holy and godly people you ought to be. That's what it's saying. And, and here the word ought implies an obligation. You can study that word throughout scripture. It's a debt. It's an obligation. We have an obligation to live holy and godly lives. Why? Why would that be? Because if you're a believer, you're not going to be judged with the ungodly. You're not going to go through that tribulation. You're not going to have to endure God's wrath because Christ already took the wrath for you. And so this goes right back to what Peter said at the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. He said in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a lot to celebrate. To praise God for. And it says further in verse 22 of 1 Peter 1. It says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Hallelujah. Now in light of this truth, we have an obligation. We ought to live holy and godly lives because of what will or won't happen to us in the end times. And we're going to come back to that whole concept of how we live now in the second section. But there's another theme that you see running through these verses several times. Verse 12 reads, As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Verse 13 says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And verse 14 says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So let me ask you, how many of you are looking forward to the end times? Are you looking forward to it? Some are. 
Some are, but I find a lot of Christians are afraid of the end times. Some even try to forestall its coming. They see things happening around the world with governing authorities and they fear, if this happens, it's going to be the end of everything. Like, like there's going to be, they're going to usher in the new world order or, or the market of beast and I got to stop this. I can't, I, I don't want this to happen. There's a fear and a hesitance and they try to stop it. But the fact is, Verse 12 says, we should look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Isn't that interesting? Now, by speeding its coming, it's not, say that we, we, it's not saying we should contribute to the downward spiral of the world so as to hurry up the judgment. That's not what it's saying. We're to live holy and godly lives, whether we're a parent, a teacher, a student, or a government official. We're to lead holy and godly lives. And we're to be holy and godly citizens. We should vote. We should vote for things that align with God's word as best as we can. But at the end of the day, we should let God be God. And we should focus on holiness and be at peace. Let him worry about the nations that are conspiring against him, as the psalm says. Let him worry about that. We're to be at peace and we're to be looking forward to the coming of the Lord, looking forward to the end times. So we should be at peace and rest. And think about that this week. If you have this sense of anxiety about the end times, that's not what God wants. We don't endure the wrath. We should be looking forward to it. Fanny Crosby was an American missionary in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And she was also a prolific lyricist and composer. And she wrote more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. And she captured this idea of our future vision and the sense of peace in the verses of a hymn you know well. It's the hymn, Blessed Assurance. I just passed it up. It says, perfect submission all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Looking forward to the end and finding a sense of peace in the end times. That's where we should be. Ironically, Fanny Crosby was physically blind, yet she had her heart and her mind and her sight set on the return of the Lord. And you know the cool thing? The first thing that Fanny Crosby will ever see with their own eyes will be the face of her Savior. How glorious will that be? We look forward to the end. So how can we speed its coming then? I would say this, by doing the things that God says are preconditions for his return. What does he say has to happen before he comes back? Well, namely, the gospel must be preached to all nations and the full number of Gentiles must come in. So, in other words, we should be fulfilling the commission, the purpose that God gave to us. We should be sharing the gospel, right? We should be active in mission around our home, our city, our church, and around the world. So share the gospel and lead people to Christ. And let's get on with this thing. Amen. <laughs> well, we should be looking forward to the end. And there should be no fear in that. And Jesus even said this. He told us we should pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. And we should be anticipating that. It'll be the culmination of everything we hope for. In Matthew 24, Jesus gave us some signs that the end is near. Let's take a look at some of them. First of all, many are deceived about spiritual things. Matthew 24, verse 5. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famine and earthquakes in various places. There will be persecution. Many will turn away from the faith. There will be false prophets. There will be an increase in wickedness, and the gospel will be preached worldwide. 
These, Jesus says, are some of the signs that the end is near. Do you see any of these things happening today? <laughs> yeah, just look at the headlines. Look at the headlines this morning. These things are going on all around us. You can't help but feel that the end times are rapidly approaching. You, you could even say that we're living in the times of the signs. Because we see these things happening. Now, I'm not for setting dates. All of the things could be in place and, and the Lord could still wait another thousand years. There's no, no, he doesn't have to come back as soon as this last thing is there. But, but these are signs that it's getting close. And the way I read scripture, as I said, the church won't be around during the tribulation and the great tribulation. I look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the context of the end times. I find comfort in that. And it's a really good thing too, because look at the second half of verse 12. It says, the day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Talk about global warming, huh? The elements will melt in the heat. It's going to be an environmental disaster of biblical proportions. But don't get the wrong idea. This is not a natural or man-made disaster like a forest fire or even a nuclear bomb. This is a supernatural event that happens. And we're going to look at that. Back in verse 10, it says, the elements will be destroyed by fire. I want you to make note of two words in that, elements and destroyed. You might just underline them. The word for elements is stoikion, which can mean the building blocks of the universe, including even the atomic elements. And it says that they will be destroyed, or if you have an ESV, it says they will dissolve. And the literal rendering of that is they will be unloosed. They'll be unloosed, untied. So the, the literal translation, the elements will be unloosed. Now with this in mind, I want to go back to something we touched on a few years ago in our study of Colossians because the text in Colossians and our text in 2 Peter here are tied together in a wonderful way. And for the second week in a row, I want, I want to get a little nerdy. I, if, I hope if you enjoy that, great. If you don't, this too shall pass. <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. But there's just, this is, this is awesome what this verse actually points to. We got to start here. If you take a look at the most simple atom, the hydrogen atom, it can be imagined as a nucleus containing one proton and an electron that orbits it. Now, we've seen this kind of diagram for an atom, but we don't actually know what they look like. Nobody has ever seen an atom, but the science community perceives that this is what it looks like. And this diagram doesn't do it justice because it's not to scale. The distance between the nucleus and the electron is equal to 100,000 times the diameter of the nucleus. In other words, if that nucleus was the size of a golf ball, the, electrons would be, the, the electron would be more than a mile away. So the atom is a tiny bit of matter with a whole bunch of empty space in between. And that's just the linear distance, 100,000 times the diameter nucleus. Think about the volume of the whole thing. The relationship of the volume of the nucleus and electron, the matter, to the volume of the overall atom is 1 in 10 to the 15th. That means that by volume, there is one quadrillion times more empty space in that atom than there is matter. That's hard to get our minds around, a number that big. But it is... This is the relationship between the matter and the space. And another way you could think of it, it's the same as the relationship between one second and 30 million years. One second would be the matter. 30 million years would be the empty space inside the periphery of this atom. So needless to say, there's a lot of empty space 
in these atoms. Here's another illustration that might help. According to Fermilab, right down the road in the National Accelerator Laboratory, if you got rid of all the empty space in the atoms, then you could fit the entire human race, 7.75 billion people, into the volume of a cube of sugar. The, the actual matter in billions of bodies will fit in a cube of sugar because we're not made up of that much matter. We're made up of a whole lot of space. Space cadets, <laughs> I think. So why does something that's so much empty space seem to be solid? Why do solids and liquids, why can, why do you not fall right through the chair that you're sitting in? Because it's almost entirely empty space. Well, the reason is because there's a force that holds those, those bits of matter together. The, the protons are positively charged and the electrons are negatively charged. And there's an electromagnetic force. You know the saying that opposites attract. If you take the positive end of one magnet and put it close to the negative end of another magnet, they're going to stick together. So the positive charge on the proton is pulling in the negative charge on the electron and supposedly offsetting the centrifugal force of this orbit, kind of like the planets orbiting the sun or the moon orbiting the earth. So that kind of holds it together, but there's something even more amazing going on within these atoms. And we'll, we'll, let's look at a, at a helium atom. Um, it has two protons in the middle and two neutrons, and then it has two electrons around the outside. Now what's happening here, each of these two protons is, is positively charged and the, and the electrons are negatively charged. But remember we said opposites attract. Within the nucleus you got two positively charged protons. They're pushing apart on each other. They're repelling each other. And so these two protons within the nucleus are trying to push each other apart Yet there's something even greater that must be holding them together. Now, scientists say that the repelling force on these two tiny little particles is about 20 pounds. You think, well, that's no big deal. But on something that tiny, that is huge, 20 pounds. So there's got to be something stronger than that electromagnetic force that's holding them together. Now, this is just two protons. If you had like a uranium atom, that thing has like 70 pounds of repulsion with the outermost protons in the nucleus. They push apart. Now, at just 20 pounds, though, if you were to let the two of them go, they would push until they were moving away at a speed of 8,000 miles per second. It would just shoot them out of there. That's more than 37,000 times the speed of sound. So again, why did the protons not just go shooting out of the middle of the nucleus of all of the atoms? Again, there's got to be something stronger holding them together. Scientists call it the strong nuclear force. And they say it's about a hundred, I'm sorry, yeah, it's about a hundred times stronger than the electromagnetic force. And they say it is the strongest known force in the universe. So when you split an atom in a nuclear bomb or in nuclear fission, what you're doing is you're unleashing the strong nuclear force. Think of the power that comes out of a nuclear bomb. Now, the thing is, the chair that you're sitting in has some of the same power in it. It's more stable. It's not as easy to split the molecules in steel and fabric as it is uranium. But if you could, there'd be this huge explosion of force. It'd be like the ultimate ejector seat. You'd be out of here. So again, Something's holding them together. There's also, scientists say, something called a weak nuclear force that interacts amongst the subatomic particles. But listen to what Dr. Lincoln of Fermilab says. He says that this is really mind-blowing and it exhibits behaviors that are completely shocking. They have no idea where these forces come from or even how they work exactly. They just know that there are these forces and these forces literally hold the universe together. 
So where am I going with all this? Well, I said this is tied to Colossians. Let me read you Colossians 1, verse 16. It says, For him, by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And verse 17 says, And in him, Jesus Christ, all things are held together. Did you ever think that Jesus Christ holds together the very atoms of your body and the atoms of the chair you're sitting in? The electromagnetic force and the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force that he's holding that together? Does scripture really say that? It absolutely does. It says he holds all things together in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And this is not the only place that says it. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God holds the universe together, literally. A power that scientists cannot understand. What would happen if he were to let go? For even a moment... Well, the answer is in our text. Look at verse 13. It says that the elements will melt away in the heat. Back in verse 10, the heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed or dissolved or unloosed by the fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. All God has to do is just stop holding it together for just a minute. And it's absolutely going to explode, dissolve, burn up, waste away. That's the truth of God's word. So let's tie together three verses that speak of three events. Beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5. It says, but they, the scoffers, deliberately forget that long ago... By God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Creation was by God's word. And then I'm going to jump over to Hebrews 1.3. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Jesus Christ created all things. He sustains all things. And he will unloose or judge or destroy all things, all ungodly things. And all three of these will be by the power of his word. Amazing. Now, someone might say, God has no right to do that, to destroy the earth like that. What kind of cosmic terrorist is he? He has no right. Really? He made it. He's holding it together. He created it for a purpose. He certainly has the right to judge it as well. But he doesn't just judge the world. Scripture says he's making all things new. Look at verse 13. There's, yeah, I, I had jumped to this too early, but that's just a little, I don't even think that does justice to what will happen when the Lord just lets go and, and the heavens and the earth dissolve. I think it's going to it's going to be fire. It's going to like fly apart everything, the whole created realm. So verse 13 then. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. What an awesome verse that is. God will restore or recreate the heavens and the earth in a way that they're no longer subjected to corruption or the curse of sin. And he'll resurrect all believers and give them a new body that's no longer subject to corruption or sin or death. 
God says, from the throne in heaven, I am making all things new. Hallelujah. Now, there's some uncertainty as to whether God will completely destroy the earth or just kind of refurbish it, resurrect it. I tend to think, I I tend not to think that he's just going to like wipe the surface of the earth like in the flood. I think it's literally going to be broken down to its basic atomic elements like we saw in our text. And then he'll probably use those same elements to put it back together again in a new way. And I think our human bodies are a little bit of a model of that. What happens when we die? Unless you're like preserved, you're going to break down ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The dust of the earth. And guess what? It'll be nutrients that'll get absorbed by plants and other things. And don't, so don't, the resurrection of the body. God can remake us from the basic elements. He doesn't, it's not going to be like a zombie apocalypse necessarily. He doesn't need your body in the casket preserved. So, oh good, I can, you know, brush it up a little bit. Prop him up like weekend at Bernie's and send him back out again. No. He can make us from the basic elements. And I think that's how it's going to be with the earth too. But either way, the the point is sin through mankind has so corrupted all of creation that the only way to fix it is to destroy it and start all over again. The flood didn't fix it, did it? But the end times will. Regardless of the process, the new earth will be the home of righteousness, it says. And God himself will dwell there eternally with man. This will be heaven. This is the future vision. It's our living hope. So let's look secondly then at a present virtue. Verses 14 through 18. So then, dear friends... Since you are looking forward to this, I hope, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And as I said at the outset, that whenever the Bible talks about end times, the emphasis is not on when it will happen, but the behavior and readiness of God's people. That's what he focuses on. That's what you see in verse 11 and verse 14. Verse 11 says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And verse 14 says, Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. See, what or who we're looking forward to has a great impact on what or who we're living for. And so the focus of end times prophecy is how we live now. End times prophecy should lead us to purity and preparedness. That's the point. Don't get caught up in when exactly will it happen. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. If you say, well, it's going to happen on, you know, March 3rd of next year. Well, you can guarantee it won't happen because God said no one knows the day or the time. So don't get caught up in that. The focus should be, how are we to live right now? And we see this in Scripture. Let me give you a couple other examples. In Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us what will happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. And Jesus tells them a few things, but then he gives them the parable of the faithful servant, which focuses on what they should be doing right now. And then he spends all of chapter 25 giving them three parables. He gives them the parable of the ten virgins, that they're to be ready. The parable of the ten talents, that they're to use the gifts that he's given us. And the parable of the sheep and the goats. Sheep and the goats, they're separated, judged based on what they do now. And then the book of Revelation, the ultimate text on end times, right? How does it start? Several chapters with letters to the churches telling them how they should be living now. See, end times prophecy should point us to purity now and preparedness. That's the point. 
Jesus' account of the faithful servant in Matthew 24 shows that being ready means more than just sitting around, passively watching and waiting for his return. It means working. It means fulfilling the purpose which God has for us. Tending to the responsibilities he's given us. Faithful servants, what are they? They're people who faithfully serve. Right? They're, they're trustworthy in service and in stewardship. And so what does he call us to do? To feed and nourish and care for and build up the body of Christ. That's our commission. In a similar way, that parable of the sheep and the goats, it shows that we're to be prepared for the judgment and we're going to be judged based on what we do or do not do, how we act toward our fellow man. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not saying that you got to earn your salvation. We're saved by grace alone. But once we're saved and God's spirit is in us, it should show in the way we treat one another by the things we do for one another and our motivation for doing it. That's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Once we're saved, we have an obligation to live holy and godly lives. See how that works? Well, verse 14 says, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Earlier in our study, we saw make every effort to add to your godliness, knowledge, and faithfulness, and self-control, and all those things. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Now, this stands in contrast to the false teachers. Look back at chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. They're not spotless and blameless. It says they're blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. Blots and blemishes. He says you're not to be a blight. You're not to be a blemish. You're to be spotless, blameless, and at peace with the Lord. Now, that's not speaking positionally. Positionally, if you're in Christ, you are spotless. You are blameless because his perfection is transferred to you. Positionally, you are spotless and blameless. This is talking practically. This is saying this is how you should be acting. This is what you should be doing. It should line up with the position that you hold. So, we're to be holy and godly, not returning to the filth that we were delivered from. There's a, there's a breed of, see, oh, I'm one behind. There's a breed of short-tail weasels that live in the northern parts of this continent, the Great Lakes region, all the way up to the Arctic. And they're, they're cute little fellers. I want one of these. <laughs> <laughs> and these, these little creatures are a marvel of creation. In the warmer months, it has light brown fur in the top and back and tail like you see here. And the belly is white. But in the winter months, it sheds its brown and white coat and it becomes pure white. With the exception of a black tip on its tail. Now, the white camouflages them in the snow in the winter months. And scientists think that the black tip on the tail, if there is a, an overhead you know, predator that spots them, they whip this thing around wildly and, and it wards off like predator birds. But look at them. Perfect, pure, spotless. Well, when it's all white, it's referred to as an ermine. That's the type of creature, an ermine. And this beautiful white coat that it has was highly valued. It was used in the robes of Byzantine emperors and European kings and queens for centuries. And it became known as a symbol of purity, the ermine. And hunters, hoping to catch these ermine, said that they need only smear a bunch of mud outside the entrance to their den, and then they release the hounds. And the hounds would go chase them all around, and after the ermine is 
exhausted, it goes to retreat, hide in its den, but it comes to this filth, this mud spread across the entrance of the den, and it stops. It doesn't want to sully its white coat. And so it turns around and it faces its predator, and it's willing to die rather than to be unclean. And so, from this animal came this saying, death before defilement. And that's why it became a symbol of purity. The ermine, the weasel. Death before defilement. God says to us in this text that Christians, as Christians, we should be symbols of purity. We're to live holy and godly lives. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. That means we don't go back to the filth that defiles us. We don't participate. Remember earlier in our text, it talked about like a, 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 a dog returning to its own vomit. A pig that's being washed, going back to its filth. God says, that's not to be you. You're to live pure, holy lives, undefiled. Now, we know we can't do that perfectly. Praise God, we have the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But we shouldn't take that loosely. I'll just do this and God will forgive me. No, we're to live holy, blameless lives. And then in verse 15, it says, Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Remember from last time, this Greek word for patience or long-suffering comes from two words, macro, big, and thumos, which means burning or righteous or anger. So together they mean like big burning anger. And we said that God has this amazing capacity to store up well-deserved righteous anger. But he won't. Hold on to it forever. He won't keep it in forever. It will spill over and there will be righteous judgment upon the earth. But for now, his long suffering, his patience, and believe me, the sin we see around us hurts God far more than it hurts us when, when he sees it. But for now, his patience means salvation for those who are willing to repent, to turn around. One of my favorite end time stories is that of a pastor and a deacon that are pounding in a sign in the, in the property outside of the church. And the sign reads, the end is near, turn around before it's too late. And as they're finishing up driving this sign in the ground, this car drives by and a guy hangs his head out the window and shakes his fist and says, leave us alone, you religious nuts. And then a moment later, as the car disappears around the curve, you hear the screeching of tires followed by a big splash. And the deacon looks at the pastor and says, you think the sign should just say, warning, bridge out? <laughs> the end is near, turn around before it's too late. Well, that's a definition of repentance you hear, turn around. It literally means to change your mind, turn around in the way you're thinking. Turn toward the Lord in repentance and, for, and, and asking forgiveness. We saw in verse 9 that God's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to turn around, to come to repentance. And we see it again in verse 15. The Lord is patient, and His patience means salvation for those who will repent. But again, the window of opportunity is closing. We're very close to the end times, I believe. It could happen in our lifetime. It might not. I'm, again, I'm not a date setter. But the admonition from the Lord is we're to be pure and we're to be prepared. On the morning of Saturday, January 13th, 2008, people all over Hawaii received a ballistic missile alert. It was issued by the emergency alert system and the wireless emergency alert system or television, radio, and cell phones. Look at what it said. Emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. This is in our times. This is a few years ago. Remember this event? 
Well, fear and panic quickly spread throughout Hawaii. Cars were reported speeding up to 100 miles an hour down the freeway. Some of them stopped in tunnels of, uh, on the interstate to try to seek shelter. Students at the University of Hawaii went running for the fallout shelters, but found the doors locked. So they took the shelter in their classrooms. Officials at the PGA golf tournament on Oahu ordered the evacuation to the media center and all their staff members sought cover in the kitchen and in the players' locker rooms. In homes, there were reports of people crying within closets, of husbands covering their babies, of families texting their final goodbyes to their loved ones around the country. They thought it was over. Well, thank God, it was a mistake. It was human error. But can you imagine what that would feel like if right now we got a text that said, take cover, ballistic missile threat. This is not a drill incoming. The end is near. What if that had been a real attack or the day of the Lord? What if that would have been the beginning of God's judgment? Jesus said, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. We're to be prepared. Now, verse 16, we covered most of this last time. Uh, He, the Apostle Paul, writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking uh, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I think what he's saying is some of Paul's letters and probably his sermons are like the peace of God. They surpass all understanding. (laughs) What is is he talking about? (laughs) Hopefully not. Ignorant and unstable people don't get it, but we can study them. And with the wisdom of the Lord and his spirit, we can understand them. But verse 17 says, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. So this speaks again to our readiness. We're to be on our guard. We're to be vigilant. The early church, they lived in a constant awareness of the imminent return of the Lord. They felt it was going to be within their lifetime, within the first century. But for us, 2,000 years later, if we're not careful, we can have the same attitude as the scoffers. It's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come back yet. What do we have to worry about? We're to do our thing. And, you know, maybe on our deathbed we'll repent. We'll turn to the Lord. We've got all kinds of time. That's being led astray by lawless or godless people. Once again, his return, it'll be sudden and it'll be unexpected. And so we're, we're called to be holy and we're called to be ready. Now, we already saw that the earth and everything in it will pass away. And it says in verse 17, you already know this. Okay, it's in his word. You've been told, you already know this. So how foolish would it be to invest all of our time and energy and resources in the things of the world? To the ultimate bad investment. Why? Because they don't last. They're going to burn up. Think about where you spend your time. What gets the, the, the majority of your time and attention and effort and energy and hope and all of that. If it's something worldly, it's going to burn up. What if we took some of those material things that so capture our affections And we run around and we put a sticker on them like this. Danger, flammable materials. (laughs) It's going to burn up. Take that car that we love so dearly. Danger, flammable materials. Your coworker might go, what are you talking about? This steel. Oh yeah, but it's going to burn. The elements will just dissolve. It's going to burn. I'm not living for this. I'm not saying it's wrong to have things. But we got to hold those things in a right way. We got to be stewards of those. We should be living for the Lord. Our life should be centered around serving the Lord and his people. When we serve others, we're serving the Lord. So 
You remember the saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we, we need to wrap this up. I'll, I'll let Peter do it for us in verse 18. It says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, we know we receive God's grace when we're saved. We talked about this in 1 Peter. It includes forgiveness, eternal life, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, his sealing, his, his spiritual gifts. We receive that grace when we're saved. But it doesn't stop there. This says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do that as we live in relationship with the Lord. We receive the grace that our prayers are heard. That Christ is interceding for us. That God is providing everything we need for life and godliness. That he's working all things together for our good. We see and experience and grow in that grace as we live in relationship with the Lord. But there's even more grace than that. In Peter's first letter, he said, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's a future grace. That's when we see the Lord face to face. And when we're given a glorious resurrection body, incorruptible. When we receive our eternal inheritance. And when we live with him forever. That's what we're to be living for. That's what we're to be looking forward to. We only get there through the end. Now, it might, your end might be tomorrow or this year or a few years from now. People get all fixated again on when the end of the world will be. When will your end be? My end could be today. <laughs> Praise God, I'm ready to go. I really am. I love you guys. I love this life. I love this church. But man, it's hard. And I am ready to go. I got my mind set on heaven. And when it's my time, peace out. <laughs> You're right. We should be looking forward to that. That's what we should be living for. That is our living hope. Amen? Well, with that comes the end. But it's not the end. It's just the beginning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, keep us mindful of these truths, God, that you created everything, that you're the creator, the sustainer, the healer, the deliverer, the comforter. God, everything we need is found in you. Help us to live in anticipation of what's to come. God, looking forward to the end times, to the eternal state, when we are with you forever. Help us to set our sights on things above, which are eternal. And God, I thank you that we don't have to go through the wrath of the end times. But we do have to live in this world today. So help us to do that with vision for the future and with virtue in the present, God. Help us to do that with living hope for your kingdom and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.